applause. That's the title of the sermon. You can applause if you want. It's the title of the sermon. Applause is addicting, isn't it? Something about it that is addicting. Dr. Ernest Mellor was the Presbyterian pastor at Germantown, Tennessee for many years. He said one time he went to a concert by young Suzuki violin students. And after the performance, the instructor came out, talked to the audience, and said they began teaching violin students at the ages of two, three, and four years old. And he said, before we even have them pick up a violin, we teach them to do two things. Number one, the proper stance, how to stand when you play the violin. But second of all, he said, we teach them how to bow after the performance because the way that they bow causes the audience to applaud louder and applause he said is a crucial motivator in learning to play the violin actor Hal Holbrook had Tony and Emmy Awards in the early 60s to the early 2000s he said applause to him was like drowning in candy Lenny Riefenstahl was a, a dancer, a German dancer and actress for many years, 50 years in fact. She said, the very first time I was on the stage and I danced, I was in my early 20s, and the crowd applauded. She said, the, the applause was so loud and so insistent, I was numb with happiness. And I knew at that moment I wanted to be on stage the rest of my life. It's addicting. And so now as we approach the halfway point of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus directed the disciples, his followers, their attention to focus. For whose applause are you living? The applause of people. Or the applause of God. And you know, that appeared to be a huge motivation for the religious leaders. They were living so everybody in the church and in the nation would applaud them because they're so godly. And Jesus said, you as citizens of the kingdom, you're different than that. You do the same activities, but you're different. You don't do it for the applause of people. You do it for the applause of God. And there was Jesus riding in on Palm Sunday, the palm branches laid before him, and crowd applauding, Hosanna! But yet he was not turned away from his mission. His eyes and ears were attuned to the Father. So listen to what he said in the sermon about focus and applause. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust 
destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, oh, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, as Jesus is talking about focus with the disciples listening to the Sermon on the Mount on the hillside that day, today he approached two areas. And I want us to talk about both of those areas, fasting and treasures. Let's talk about both. First of all, letter A on your outline, verses 16 through 18, fasting. Jesus talked about fasting. Now, if you remember last Sunday, I mentioned to you that Back in Jesus' day, if a person was godly or righteous, they did three things. They gave alms, that would help the poor people. They prayed, and they fasted. And so Jesus, in the sermon, covered all three activities. And for all three activities, he gave a counterexample and then a model. How to give your helping the poor people. How to pray. We talked about that in the model prayer. And now he's talking about fasting. Now, the religious leaders, they did all three of these things, but they wanted everybody to know it. Oh, look how much I give to the poor. Let's blow a trumpet. Oh, look how much I pray. I'm going to stand on the corner and let you hear me be blessed to hear me pray. Oh, look how how much I fast. And they went over and above so everybody in the crowd would say, Oh, you are a godly person, and applaud them. So, Jesus didn't condemn these three activities. He just said, Christians, you do them differently. You do them. You just do them differently. Concerning fasting. Fasting is depriving yourself of something, usually food. It doesn't have to be food. Depriving yourself of something to bring greater focus and attention to God in your life. That's what a fast is. You give up something so that you can focus your attention greater on God, concentrate upon Him, deny yourself, and be humble. That's why you fast. Now, in the Old Testament, God commanded His people fast one day a year. That's all. One day a year on the Day of Atonement. And even then, he didn't really call it a fast. Um, He said in Leviticus 16, verses 19 to 24, he said, on the Day of Atonement, you are to afflict your souls. What does that mean? Well, the rabbis took the phrase, you are to afflict your souls, as fasting, as giving up something your soul wants, like food. So they interpreted it to be a fast, even though God didn't actually say fast one time a year. 
If you go through the Old Testament, the Israelites, as we're studying on Wednesday night in Zechariah, they went to exile. The temple is destroyed. They can't bring the sacrifices. So to make up for it, they added four more fasts. So five times a year now, all the Israelites fasted. God only commanded one. Then by the time you get to Jesus in the New Testament, you have religious leaders, the Pharisees, fasting twice a week. Twice a week, 104 times a year, because they were really godly. And they became notorious for their fasting. And everybody applauded. And whenever they fasted, they showed you they were fasting. They disfigured their faces. They walk around, oh, what's wrong? I'm fasting because I'm so spiritual. I would love some food, but I can't have it because I'm just so godly. It's ridiculous, isn't it? They did that. Disfigured their faces and they moaned. And everybody went, oh, to be as godly as they are. Jesus said, you have it all wrong. Isn't it crazy? The purpose of fasting was to deny yourself so it focused upon God. They denied themselves to focus on themselves. Jesus said something interesting in verse 16. And when you fast, Christians, followers of the kingdom, when you fast, he didn't say, if you fast, when you fast, don't look gloomy. Don't walk around disfigured. Wash your face. Anoint your head. Look normal. Because you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for him. And, and your father who sees you fasting will reward you. But those Pharisees, when they get the applause... Rewards over. Now, what's really interesting in this passage is the word reward. In verse 16, whenever Jesus said, When the Pharisees fast, they have their reward, and he uses the word misthos. That is the most common word. You'll see it on the screen. That's the most common word for reward in Scripture. Misthos means it's basically wages or something you earned. You put in so many hours, you get paid. Misthos is your salary. It's your, it's your income. You work hard, you get the reward. That's what misthos is. But Jesus said later in verse 18, but, but Christians, believers, followers of the kingdom, whenever you fast, your Father will see you in secret and He will reward you. He uses a different word for reward. Look on the screen. He uses a compound word, didomy, with the prefix apo. What's the difference? Misthos is something you work for. It's your wages. You earned it. You get it. Apodidomy is something somebody gives you. You didn't earn it. That's what he's saying. If you are just trying to please people for the applause of people, when you get the applause, you earned it, you got it, you work for it, it's over. But if you do what you do for God... And he sees in secret, he will reward you. He will give you eternal rewards. So, good question. 
Do you want the applause of people? Or do you want the applause of God? Now, the Pharisees were really good at taking spiritual, transcendent things and wielding them for their own glory, wielding for their own temporary satisfaction. But Jesus' followers are to be different, he said. We are to deprive ourselves of something immediate in order to focus on something greater and eternal. So may your applause be God's, not from that of people. What is it about us that whenever we do something good, we want everybody to know? I mean, in church, a lot of people do a lot of good things, but then there are a lot of people, they want to make sure you know they did it. And if you don't show appreciation, they get their feelings hurt. So do what you do for God, whether anybody says a word or not. Second area, treasures, letter B, verses 19 to 24. So, after addressing these three godly activities of almsgiving and prayer and fasting, Jesus now talks about treasures, and, and he breaks this, this pattern of where he gave a, a counter example and then a model. He doesn't do that here. He just talks about treasures, and now he breaks this pattern to show us what we value in life is who we are. So, rather than a pattern, he gives us now three principles. So, let's look at the three principles before we close in verses 19 to 24. Principle number one, investment determines devotion. Investment determines devotion. Do not lay up treasures, he said, verse 19, on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves steal. Lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy and thieves do not steal. And then he says something fascinating. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Notice he did not say where your heart is, your treasure will be. That's what, that's what we think. No, no, he said, where your treasure is, your heart follows. You see, I, I've heard the phrase forever, oh, follow your heart. Your, your, you don't, the heart doesn't lead you. Your treasure leads you. And your heart goes where your treasure is. So you don't follow your heart. Heart follows you. It follows what you invest in. Where you're invested will be where your heart is. It's not the other way around. Do you know why there aren't more people in our services today? Look at empty places, empty seats. You know why? Very simple. Their treasure's not here. It's somewhere else. Now, you, you, can, you can make any excuse you want. The bottom line is, you go where your treasure is. It's where you're invested. It's where your devotion is. They're not here because this is not their treasure. Bottom line. You know why other people won't miss? Their treasure's here. 
I love it. It's where the heart is. Why is your heart there? Because of what you treasure. There are some people today, you're at the lake because that's where the treasure, that's where the heart is. Or they're with family, that's where their heart is. I don't go to church because it's a day for family. It's family day. Family's your treasure. That's where your heart's going to be. Or a lot of people treasure their day off. I have one day off from work. It's Sunday. I just want to kick back and not do anything. Okay, that, that's fine. That's what you treasure. You treasure that day off. That's where your heart is. And if your treasure is Christ, your devotion is going to be Christ. What Jesus said is really simple. Sometimes we complicate it and give all these excuses. It's where your treasure is. Your heart's going to follow. Now, Jesus didn't say it was wrong to have earthly possessions. He's not saying that at all. It's just you don't set your heart on them. Because if you do, that's where your devotion's going to be. Because then you will be devoted to them rather than God. So we have people devoted to boats and cars and motorcycles and devoted to, to everything else. Job, they're devoted to their job. They spend more time with their job than they do with the Lord. They're, they're devoted to hobbies. They're devoted to work. They're devoted to family. And that's what Jesus was talking about, where your treasure is. Your heart's going to follow. Here's the second principle he gave us. Verses 22 and 23, next he says, pay attention to the little things. Pay attention to the little things. Then he said, your eye. Think about your eye. Your eye is the lamp for the entire body. If your, light, if your eye is bright with light, your body's full of light. But if it's dark, you're full of darkness. And oh, that darkness is great. He uses the word light. There's the exact same word for the transfiguration when Jesus, his, his clothes transfigured and shone before them. Your eye, your focus determines the condition of your entire body. Your treasure does. Now, your eye today is, uh, it's kind of interesting part of the body. It's taller than it is wide. And by the time you're 12 years old, they're full grown. And, and your eye allows you to, to see color and depth and perception and allows you to see 10 million different colors. Your eye. And it's, it's less than an inch. So in proportion to your whole body, it's really, really small. But it's the small things you have to watch. Because your eye can lead you down a wrong road. Your eye can make you focus on the wrong things and cause you to stop following Christ. So Jesus said, watch your eye. It can get you in trouble. That's why it's been called the gateway to the five senses. It's been called gateway to your soul because your eye, if your vision's wrong, 
whether it's about alms or, or fasting or prayer or treasures. If your vision's wrong, it can lead your entire life to be wrong and darkness come. So pay attention to the little things, even things as small as your eye. We had an ophthalmologist sitting on the front row in the 845 service, and I'm nervous thinking, I hope I got all those facts right. She said, you did, you did. Okay, good. Here's principle number three. You must have an undivided attention. Verse 24. You must have an undivided attention. Jesus then looked at the crowd in his sermon and said, nobody can serve two masters. You're either going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. So what did he mean? Now, I've heard a lot of sermons on Matthew 6.24 about this passage, and the pastor just rails against money. Money, money's wrong, money's evil, money's, and just rails against. And I'm not, I'm not certain money's the main point of this verse. Now, Jesus uses a monetary motif, don't get me wrong. And, yes, we don't need to value money too much or it can take our eyes off the Lord. But I think Jesus is going to something deeper here. He's going to something more significant than money. He's going to your focus. He's going to your treasure. He's going to those things where you affix your eyes. And he asked the question, who is your master? Who's your master? One theologian said one time, our first job in life is not to find our freedom, it's to find our master. Because you'll follow your master. Who is it? What is it? Now, he's saying God and other things can't be your master, both of them. You're, and you're saying, well, I, yeah, I can work two full-time jobs. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the motif of master and slave. So you are owned in those in biblical days. You, if you were a slave, you were owned by one master, not two masters, one master. And you could serve only him. You couldn't serve two masters. You were owned by one. And that's why he says we are bought with a price at the cross. We have one master. You can't serve two. Because if you try to serve two masters, one eye's over here and one eye's over here, you're cross-eyed. You don't have a singular focus. And there are a lot of believers in churches trying to serve this and trying to serve that and trying to work all these hours a week and trying to do this and trying to do this and trying to serve the Lord. And, and no wonder they're not good at any of it. Because you only have one master. And that's who you serve. And then he said, you cannot serve God and mammon. What is mammon? Well, most translations, of biblical translations, they translate man, mammon as money. Well, not exactly. We don't really know what mammon was. Let me kind of give you a brief history of the word. The word mammon's not in the Old Testament, but the concept is it's the word aman, which means uh, to confide in something or trust in something. 
Then we get the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, and guess what? The word mammon's in there. Where'd it come from? I don't know. It's been around a long time. It goes all the way back even to the Punic language, which was the Phoenicians. They used the word mammon. And it was an old Aramaic word. They, they used it. It was mammona, which meant wealth. And then Albert Barnes and other theologians say, no, no, it was the name of a Syriac god. The god of riches was mammon. Never found evidence of that. Later in the Middle Ages, the word mammon became synonymous with other vices like materialism. Not just money, but other things. And then you go to 1880 to 1925, here in America, the social gospel movement and the American populist movement, and the word mammon referenced the banking industry and large corporations. And today in Russia, the word mammon means a man with a great big belly. What is mammon? It's it's appetite. It's pleasure. It's possessions, it's money, it's everything anti-God. So it appears Jesus is using this word in opposition to say, what is your focus, mammon or God? And whom do you serve? Will it be mammon or mystos? Will it be Man's reward or God's reward? Will it be the chump change of earth or will it be the eternal riches of heaven? Where'd your applause come from? So, if you turn a deaf ear to the applause here, you're in a good place. Listen for the applause heaven. And just like Jesus on that Palm Sunday with the branches before him, Hosanna! Hail to the King! He tuned it out and affixed his eyes and attuned his ears to the Father and the mission. He was not dissuaded from the mission. So may we do the same. In the year 1909 and 1910, President Teddy Roosevelt had just left the presidency of the United States, and he made big news by going on an African big game hunt to East Africa. He had a large entourage that went with him. They sailed across in a ship in 1909, he took his 19-year-old son Kermit with him, who had taken a year off from Harvard to go on this trip. And they're sailing over there, and they kill all these animals, and they come back the following year in 1910. They stay a year. They killed 512 animals altogether. It, it took the Smithsonian eight years to preserve them all. And so he's on the way back there with all of his entourage, with all these big game animals, and, and he's on a ship sailing back to the U.S. June of 1910. On the same ship traveling with Roosevelt and his party was an old missionary who had retired from Africa and he was coming back to the States. His name was Henry Morrison. Henry and his wife were on the ship after 40 years of faithful service in East Africa. 
and they're on the ship, and all the attention is going, the buzz and the fanfare is going to Roosevelt, and nobody's paying attention to this old missionary and his wife. The ship nears the dock in New York, and the old missionary, Henry, turns to his wife and says, Honey, look at the crowd that's here. Look at that. And the crowd was cheering, waiting on his ship to dock, and the flags were waving, and the bands were playing, and the media was waiting for interviews, and cameras were flashing. It was a spectacle, and the ship docks, and there's a roar from the crowd, and everybody's focused on Roosevelt. And off to the side, Henry Morrison, an old 40-year grizzled veteran of serving the Lord in Africa, he and his wife walk off a side exit. Nobody notices them. They get in a cab. They drive one block away, ride one block away to a one-room apartment rented for them by the mission board. And they get there, and Henry turns to his wife and says, Honey, there's something wrong. We served the Lord for 40 years in Africa, and we come home nothing. And the president goes to East Africa, and he kills a lot of game, and he comes home, and the bands are playing, and the crowd's there. There's just something wrong with this picture. Why does God let that happen? Why does God not honor his heroes? She said, honey, let it go. It'll be all right. I know, I know it will, but I, I can't. I, it just bothers me. It's wrong. This went on about two weeks. Still bothered Henry. He went to his study, got down on his knees, and he says, God, I, I've not complained much 40 years in Africa. I really didn't. But I'm a little bitter. The president goes, comes home, is greeted by a fanfare. And my wife and I give 40 years there. We come home and nothing. Just doesn't seem right. And he said, I heard God speak to me and say, Henry, you're not home yet. When you get home, you will have all the applause of heaven that will make this one pale in comparison. You're just not home yet. So where are you looking for applause? Here? Where's your focus? There? Applause really is addicting, isn't it? Make sure you get it from Him. Father, I want to thank you today for this passage. It speaks so much to our lives today. And Lord, I, I know that you're not unfaithful to your servants. And Father, forgive us where at times we want everybody in the world to applaud us. Lord, may we only listen for the applause of heaven. And now, Lord, may the focus of our life be right. And now, just pray during this time of invitation. It's an opportunity to get that right. I pray that we will, in Jesus' name. Amen.